All right, welcome back, everyone, to our Sunday School series as we are making our way through the book of Zechariah. Today we're on chapter 8, and so we're going to be looking at chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. I'll read that for us here. It's a little bit of a lengthier passage, and then we'll make our way through it. So here now is Zechariah chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. And the word of Yahweh of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I am zealous for Zion with a great zeal, and with great fury I am zealous for her. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I have returned to Zion, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth, and the mountain of Yahweh of hosts, a holy mountain. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Old men and old women will sit in the midst of the open places of Jerusalem, and each one will have his staff in his hand from old age. And the open places of the city will be filled with young boys and young girls playing in its open places. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, If it will be marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in those days, then in my eyes will it also be marvelous, says Yahweh of hosts. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west, and I will bring them, and they will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Let your hand be strong. Hearing in these days these words from the mouth of the prophets, which on that day the house of Yahweh of hosts was established to build the temple. For before those days a wage of man was not, and a wage of a beast there was not. For the going out and the coming in there was no peace from the enemy. And I set every man against his neighbor. But now, not like the former days, Will I deal with the remnant of this people, says Yahweh of hosts, for they shall be a seed of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the land shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due, and I shall give as a possession all of these things to the remnant of this people. And it shall be that just as you were a curse among all the nations, O house of Judah and O house of Israel, thus I shall save you, and you shall be a blessing. You shall not fear. Let your hand be strong. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, just as I have purposed to bring evil upon you when your fathers provoked me to anger, says Yahweh of hosts, and I did not relent, so I have returned. And I have purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. You shall not fear. These are the words which you shall do. Speak truth, each man to his neighbor. Truth and a judgment of peace judge in your gates. And each man, you shall not scheme evil toward your neighbor in your heart. And a false oath you shall not desire. For all of these things are what I hate says Yahweh of hosts. Let's pray as we uh, dive into this text a little bit here in our time together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Zechariah. 
And we pray that you would open up your word to us, um, that we would understand what it is that your prophet is intending to say to us here through the inspiration of your spirit. Lord, we pray that you'd give us attentive minds and sharp intellects and willing spirits to hear your word now as we look at this text. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, if you'll remember from last week, we were looking at uh, all of chapter 7, and chapter 7 of Zechariah is a kind of uh, rebuke of false religion. You remember that there were some people from Bethel that had shown up in Jerusalem, and they were wondering, they're saying, okay, now that the temple is almost done, it's almost done being rebuilt, do we need to keep participating in all the fasts in which we remember that uh, the temple was destroyed when we were brought into exile? And what Zechariah points out is that those people had a kind of ritualistic view of religion. They saw it as something where they just needed to perform outward rituals like fasting or going to feasts. But it was clear that their heart wasn't in the right place. And so all of chapter 7 was a kind of large rebuke of false religion, of just going through the motions and not being involved in what we might call true religion. And in chapter 8 here, what we have is not so much a negative rebuke, that is, calling someone out on their false religion, but what we have here is really more of a kind of positive rebuke. It's a rebuke that is couched in the language of blessing. It is God explaining the results of true religion and where that comes from and what God is going to do with his true covenant people who really uh, have faith in him and who trust him and obey him. And so this text is going to be really good. There's a lot of stuff here to look at. It breaks down into three parts, or at least the three parts I've decided to structure the text in. There's a, probably a million ways you could outline this. But firstly, we're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 5, which is God's return. And secondly, verses 6 through 10 is God's timing. And then thirdly, we have God's blessing or God's promise in the final verses, verses 11 through 17. So these parts, as we put them together to understand what the text is telling us, what's the big picture point, what's our takeaway this morning, we want to understand that God not only gives blessings to his covenant people, but he also makes them a blessing. Okay, God doesn't just give blessings to Christians. He makes Christians a blessing to other people and to the world uh, in general. And so that's our main point. We're going to see that as we work our way through the text. So let's look at our first point here, God's return, which is our first five verses here. We see here that uh, in verse 1, the word of Yahweh comes to Zechariah. So we've got a new prophetic uh, sermon, if you will. <laughs> he received the word, and now he's going to say what he has received. And God is clearly in verse 2 demonstrating that he has not forgotten about Jerusalem, that he is not neutral on the subject. You can imagine that many of the Israelites at this point, especially if they uh, grew up in Babylon, they were born in Babylon, grew up there in the exile, and now they've recently come back to the land of Canaan. There's some positive things going on, the temple's being rebuilt and so on, but you can imagine that perhaps some of the Israelites may have been a little bit uh, suspicious about God's intentions. In other words, they could be wondering, God, do you really care about Jerusalem? Will you now today 
as we're rebuilding the temple, as we're rebuilding the city, will you care about Jerusalem as much as you cared about it long ago in the days of our fathers like David and Solomon? Will you care about this city as much as you did back then? And lest anyone raise that charge against God or question him in that way, God puts their doubts to rest by saying, no, I am zealous for Jerusalem with a great zeal. And with great fury, I am zealous for her. So he makes it very clear right here through the words of Zechariah. God cares about Jerusalem. God cares about his people, where they are at. And God's not going to forget about the importance of this city. Verse 3 here, when he says, I've returned to Zion and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, echoes chapter 1, verse 16. You may remember from long ago when we were first beginning our series in Zechariah, that chapter 1, verse 16 is kind of like the, the main thesis of the whole book, essentially. Uh, chapter 1, verse 16 says, uh, this is Yahweh speaking, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built on it, declares Yahweh of hosts. And we see that message uh, flooding the pages of Zechariah. The whole point of this book is to say God wants to rebuild his house and he is going to dwell with his people. That is the message here. And the promise that we're seeing here in verses 3, 4, and 5 is that God's not simply going to return in theory, but he's going to return in reality. He's actually going to dwell in the temple that they are rebuilding. He's going to be with his people. When God returns to, to the, um, the temple that's being rebuilt here, that mountain, the Mount Zion on which the temple is built, is not going to be an ordinary mountain. It's going to be a holy mountain, verse 3. It's going to be a holy mountain, the mountain of Yahweh of hosts itself. And because of that, then Jerusalem is going to be called the city of truth. The city of truth. And the reason for that, I think, is because of what Jesus says in John 17, 17. You may be familiar with this verse. Jesus says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And so when we're told here that Jerusalem is going to be the city of truth, what we're, what we're learning is that Jerusalem is going to be a city that is filled with the word of God. And God's word is never idle when it is present. God himself is never idle when he is present. He is always working to sanctify his people, to make them holy. Jesus prayed that God the Father would sanctify us in his truth, sanctify us by means of his word. And that's exactly what Zechariah is pointing out here. Jerusalem will be characterized as a city where the word of God is preached and the people are sanctified on the holy mountain. And this again, if I can just bring this up really quickly in passing, this again is evidence that uh, Jerusalem here, from a New Testament perspective, is more than just the physical city. Jerusalem is ultimately pointing to the church because is it not the church today where this happens? Is it not the church that is characterized by being a city of truth, a city where the word of God is preached and the people are made holy? 
And in connection with that, notice verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5 are pointing out that in this city, in this city of truth, this Jerusalem, there are going to be old men, old women, and young boys and young girls. People of all ages will comprise this city. They'll be playing in the streets. The the elderly will be sitting in the streets with their staves, marking that they've been there for a long time. Now, for Zechariah's original audience... This would be a big deal because Jerusalem was no place for the elderly or the children at this time. Jerusalem was a giant construction zone. And in a construction zone, you don't want the elderly and you don't want young children nearby because it's, quite frankly, it's somewhat dangerous. And there really isn't any point for them being there until the city's finished. And so, in a certain sense, this promise is promising that Jerusalem as a city will be finished and that it will be inhabited by all ages of people. But from a more full sense, because Jerusalem in Zechariah is more than just the physical city, that Jerusalem is the church, we can see that indirectly this supports the idea that the church is made up not simply of the elderly, but it's made up of people of all kinds of ages. The covenant community is comprised of believers and their children. That certainly was the way that it was in the Old Testament, and it's what we as Presbyterians and and covenant theologians believe is also true in the New Testament as well. So here we see in verses 4 and 5 this amazing peace of all ages of people dwelling in the city. Now let's look at section 2 here, which is uh, verses 6 through 10. What's kind of interesting here is that you've got these promises that God brings up here. Jerusalem will be a city of truth and a holy mountain and all this. So the reinstitution of uh, worship of Yahweh, worship of the true God. And you've got this promise of amazing peace and prosperity, which we'll also see coming up again later in the chapter. And what's interesting is that after Zechariah's time, there was a kind of general prosperity and a revival of Judaism in Jerusalem. But the problem is that everyone recognizes in the study of history that the promises that show up here in chapter 8 do not come to pass as fully as they seem to be presented in the text here. In other words, the promises here are is for this amazing utopia of peace. And for the, as we see in verses 12 and, and following later on in the chapter, that there's going to be abundant produce and the land is going to yield fruit and there's going to be plenty of dew and so on and, and the people of God will be this amazing blessing for the rest of the earth. This never comes to pass in physical, literal, earthly Jerusalem as of this time yet in history. And pretty much all Christians are in agreement on this. Dispensationalists, covenant theologians, the whole nine yards, everyone recognizes that the prophecies in Zechariah 8 have not yet come to pass in, us, in the literal, physical Jerusalem. I mean, in fact, uh, Zechariah here promises that Mount Zion, the place where the temple was built, is going to be a holy mountain. Yet there's some irony here because Zechariah himself was slaughtered on Mount Zion. That's how his life ended. That's how the life of this prophet ended. So, so much for it being a holy mountain when it's a mountain on which prophets are being slaughtered. And so because of this sort of issue with the fact that these prophecies never actually come about in history, as pretty much all Christians who've studied the history of, of Israel after this point recognized, 
there have been essentially two different views on what to make of these prophecies. When is it that the old and the young are going to play in the open parts of Jerusalem? That never really, the, the peace being presented there, the perfect utopia in, uh, in Jewish metaphor just never really happens. The rest of the blessings that we'll look at in a second never really happen in a physical, literal sense. And so that's where you've got the system of theology called dispensationalism, which proposes an answer to this question. And you may be familiar with dispensationalism. You may not be. Um, but what dispensationalists believe and what they'll argue is that these prophecies in Zechariah have to be fulfilled in literal, physical Israel. And so for that reason, they say that these prophecies will come to pass in a future period. And if you know much about dispensationalism, you can probably guess what future period they're talking about. They're talking about the millennial reign of Christ, the literal thousand-year reign of Christ after the, the uh, tribulation rapture. And it's the time after the tribulation where Jesus is going to come on to earth and he is going to establish an earthly kingdom for a thousand years to reign with uh, the Jewish people. And so what the dispensationalists will say is that this, this, uh, all the prophecies in chapter 8 here are going to come to pass in the millennial reign of Christ, or at least in some other future period of history, because it has to be the literal, physical Jerusalem. Now, that's a possibility, of course, and if you're a dispensationalist, that's what you will tend to lean toward. But as Presbyterians, we're not dispensationalists. Uh, dispensationalism itself goes against about every fiber of the Westminster Confession, and in my judgment, goes against Scripture too. Um, so we're not dispensationalists. Rather, there's another view that I think is the better view to take on these Zechariah prophecies, and that is the view of covenant theology. Now, I'm sure you've heard of covenant theology. If you've been in my Sunday school class for any period of time, covenants are going to come up at some point, and they come up because they're so important for understanding the story of the Bible and the connection between the Old and the New Testaments. And what covenant theologians make of prophecies like what we're seeing in Zechariah and what we see throughout the rest of Scripture is we understand that the New Covenant Church, that is the New Testament, the Christian Church, is the true and proper heir of all the Old Testament promises. And not that the church just sort of hijacked promises that were supposed to be for Israel, but rather that the prophecies about Israel and Jerusalem and all of the prosperity and the peace and so on were actually all about the church in the first place. And this whole idea goes back to one of the fundamental points that I made about our study of Zechariah back in our introduction session. All right, our very first session that we had together on Zechariah, the introduction where we went over the history and some of the features of Zechariah. You remember that I had said that in Zechariah, as well as in just the prophets of the Old Testament in general, prophecies about the New Testament church, spiritual prophecies about the New Testament church, are often presented in the prophets using Old Testament Israel language. So, for example, a prophecy about the spiritual peace and the spiritual blessing of the church oftentimes shows up in the Old Testament prophets as being prophecies about the prosperity of the land of Israel. 
which is exactly what we see in verse 12, and we'll get to that in a little bit. So what I want you to understand is that the prophecies in Zechariah about Jerusalem and so on may have a sort of slight fulfillment in history, but everyone agrees that the prophecies fall, or that the history falls short of the grand scale of the prophecies. And the reason for that is because these prophecies are not talking about literal physical Jerusalem. That's not their purpose. The prophecies are talking about the New Testament church and the spiritual reality that it is. And we've seen that a whole bunch of times throughout Zechariah. You remember earlier, we recognized that the text clearly said Jerusalem in Zechariah and in, in the future is not going to be a city with walls, right? It's a spiritual city, a city which God decides the boundaries of. Now let's look at what those implications are. What are the implications of this idea as we move throughout the text? Well, I want to direct your attention here down to uh, verse 7. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west, and I will bring them and they will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Now here is the fantastic line that I want to spend some time on. And they will be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. Here is the great promise, lest Israel, as they hear the words of Zechariah, question God, question whether he will be faithful to them, question whether he will save them. No, he makes it very clear. I will save my people, and I will draw them. From all corners of the world, I will bring them together. I'll be drawing them from the nations. And I'll bring them together, and they will all dwell in one holy city, Jerusalem. And here is the fantastic line, I will be their God, and they will be my people. This line, I will be their God, they will be my people, that is the covenant formula of the Pentateuch. That's the covenant formula that God uses to indicate when he's in covenant with someone. And so what we're being told here is that God will draw his covenant people from all over the world, from as far as the east and from all as the west, and he will bring them all together in one Jerusalem, one city of truth. And they will be his people, what? In truth and in righteousness. Now, what he means by that is that in truth means in reality, and in righteousness means in practice. And it's in the next few verses, verses 9 and 10, where God explains why this really wasn't the case for the former generation, the rebellious generation that caused the Babylonian exile. And he says, they didn't listen to the words, the words of God. And there was no wage for them in verse 10, meaning... That there was no blessing for them. They were not given divine favor because they were, um, they were rebellious and unfaithful. But in verse 11, the tide changes a little bit. We turn a corner. He's, God says, But now, not like the former days, will I deal with the remnant of this people, says Yahweh of hosts, for they will be a seed of peace. A seed of peace that will grow into a tree of peace. What does that look like? Well, the vine will give its fruit, and the land will give its produce, and the heavens will give its dew, 
and I will give all these things as a possession to the remnant of this people. Again, these are things that did not happen in literal physical Israel. While the land of Canaan at one point was a land flowing with milk and honey, after the Babylonian exile, Israel is mostly a desert. In fact, today, it's really a you know, junky property, to be honest. There's not a lot of good land in Israel even today. So this prophecy did not come to pass in literal physical Israel. But as covenant theologians, we have no issue with that because this prophecy is pointing not to the prosperity of the land of Israel, but rather to the prosperity, the spiritual prosperity of the Christian church. And if it's not clear enough to you yet, let's keep going. Verse 13, And it shall be that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and O house of Israel, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing, and you shall not fear. Let your hand be strong. In history, Israel was not the blessing of the nations after the Babylonian exile. First of all, Israel was always underneath another empire. First the Persian Empire at the time of Zechariah, then you've got the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great and then his four generals, and then you've got the Roman Empire. Now, Israel was not anything special. They were not a blessing. In fact, the, the Romans and the Greeks particularly thought Israel was sort of the great nuisance. It was the great annoying piece of property that you had to have in order to control the trade routes, but it was just a miserable place to be because it was hot, the land was not very good, and uh, the people were very rebellious, uh, naturally, because the Jews wanted to be free. They wanted David on the throne because they were looking for that Davidic king, uh, most of them missing the fact that Jesus ended up being that Davidic king. And so again, we see that this promise of, of God's people being a blessing doesn't come to pass in literal physical Israel, but rather... What does end up in history becoming a great blessing, not simply to the uh, Jewish people, but to all the world, to all the nations, is the Christian church. Because it brings the message of the gospel and the word of God, not to one small ethnic group in the Mediterranean, but it brings the gospel to all the nations, to all the places in the world. And so Christians take comfort in this fact. We in this passage are called a blessing. See, the Christian life is not just about receiving blessings from God. Now, of course, we do receive blessings. We are certainly blessed by uh, Christianity, by the Word of God, by the church, and so on. But our task as the church is not simply to receive blessings, but rather we are to be a blessing to the nations. And finally, then, as we finish up our section here on God's blessing in verses uh, 15, 16, and 17. Notice again that we have promises of things that will happen in the future that we know for sure have not happened yet. Verse 16, these are the things which you shall do. Speak truth, each man with his neighbor. Truth and a judgment of peace judge in your gates. And each man you shall not scheme evil toward your neighbor in your heart, and false oaths you shall not desire, for all of these things are what Yahweh, or, or what I hate, declares Yahweh. So notice in this passage, we are told that one of the distinctive marks of what's going to happen in this covenant people, this city of truth, what's going to happen among God's people is that essentially there will be no more sin. 
You notice that? People are not going to think evil thoughts toward their neighbor. They're not going to scheme. They're not going to be swearing false oaths. They're going to be rendering true and just judgments of peace, of shalom. Well, notice that that never happens in earthly Jerusalem. That continued to happen, just like it continues to happen in any earthly city. And indeed, this kind of thing happens in the church, too. But see, this is where we need to invoke the category of the already and the not yet. Because there's a certain sense in which these prophecies are fulfilled in the church right now. We are a blessing to the nations right now. But there's a greater sense in which these prophecies are not yet fulfilled, and they will be fulfilled, not in some kind of millennial reign of Christ among the Jewish community, but rather they will be fulfilled in the future, in the new heavens and the new earth, in eternity. You see, it's in heaven that the fullest sense of God being our God and we being his people comes to fruition, where we get to dwell with him, where his presence is completely unmediated, where we behold his face, we behold his glory, a place where there really will be perfect peace and true and just judgments offered, where people of all ages are sitting and playing in the open places of the streets of gold in this heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the great city that we will spend all of eternity with Jesus in. This is our great blessing that we receive as believers in Jesus Christ. And so in this passage, we see that we receive blessings And we also are blessings. Let's pray as we finish up here. Oh God, we thank you for Zechariah. We thank you for these great prophecies, this great teaching that we find in your word. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be a blessing in this world. Pray, Lord, that we wouldn't be dishonoring to you, but rather that we would honor you with our whole being and that we would be a light in the darkness, that we would be a blessing, bringing people to Christ through our conduct and through our preaching of the gospel and through our sharing of our faith. And Lord, we also thank you that that we get to be a blessing, but we thank you that we also get to, to receive a blessing. And not just simply earthly blessings by which you take care of us, but rather a heavenly blessing, the great blessing of the beatific vision the great blessing of going to be with you for all eternity in that perfect heavenly city of truth, the new Jerusalem. Lord, we thank you for this great truth, and we pray that you would help us to trust in you more and more each day as we look forward to that glorious place that we call heaven. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.